Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're doing an episode on Le Cinema du Québec. La Cinema du Québec. It's... That's my uh, Québécois accent. Now, Canada has two official languages, English and French, and the majority of people who speak French come from Quebec. That's not where they all come from. I'm from Ontario, so I'm a Franco-Ontarian, and there's people that are Acadian as well. The Quebec film industry is interesting. As we said last week... You know, one of the things about Canada is that most of our population is English speaking and most of our population lives close to the U.S. border. So uh, we are very culturally similar to the United States and much of our popular culture is imported. Most of our popular culture is imported from the United States. Uh, We do have our own TV industry. We do have our own film industry. English Canadian films are not particularly popular here, although uh, they're not popular at all. A little movie called Passchendaele. A little movie called Duct Tape Forever. Yeah, but those were never popular or made money. That's the big difference. They're not popular. But there is a province that is not only sufficiently culturally dissimilar from the United States, but also sufficiently culturally dissimilar from the rest of Canada Mm -hmm. to have its own booming media ecosystem. A place that has its own talk show circuit, its own celebrities, its own thriving film industry. That does not cross over with the rest of Canada at all. So like when films open in Quebec, they will not open in the rest of Canada. Like not even in Toronto most of the time. I mean, it has to be like the biggest... Quebecois movie of the decade to open in English Canada. Yeah, it needed to play TIFF, it needed to win awards, then maybe it'll open the rest of English Canada. Like, something like The Grand Seduction Mm -hmm. would maybe cross over. But most of the films, especially the popular ones, no. They just stay in Quebec, and that's where they remain. And it's fine there because they make a lot of money there. Mm -hmm. And we should say a lot of money in comparison to Canadian films. Well, it's a lot of money, but you have to understand that the population of Quebec is what? Six million, eight Mm -hmm. million people? So it can only do so well. Yeah, exactly. So I should give a little bit of backstory right from the get-go, which is that my first language is French, as you may uh, be able to tell from the way I I say the word episode. I say episode instead. And the way you say Raoul Coutard. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So I grew up until the end of high school, spending the majority of my time in a home that only spoke French. I went to French school, not French immersion school for most people who are Canadian, just French French school. Mm -hmm. And I got to be 100% honest, I hated it. And I'll tell you why. French was everything for me when I was a kid. Everybody spoke French. Uh, I had to write French. I had to speak French at home. And... English was like the devil's language. Like, I couldn't speak it. And I was kept after school and had to write, like, you know, the way that you would be punished um, if you got in trouble at my school was that you would have to conjugate verbs. Specifically, you had to conjugate the verb avoir et être. Que j'ai la vous avez. I don't know if you ever did that when you were uh, in yes, school. Yes, I did. <laughs> and I took French up to and including grade 10. So I was kind of resentful toward this. And it's only like over the last few years that I've realized it's because I couldn't see outside of where I was. I just assumed that, you know, everywhere else was kind of like where I lived. Like French, even in Ottawa, everybody seemingly spoke French, which it was the um, biggest town close to where I live, which was a little town called Castleman. And like my father speaks English and he only spoke English. So like I would see him once a week and all the entertainment I like is in English. So I'm like, why can't I speak English? This is crazy. Not understanding like how like genuine 
genuinely special it was that I could be in this environment. So from the get-go, like any French culture, and by consequence, that's Quebec culture. So I'm Franco-Ontarian. That's essentially like Quebec as far as the culture that, you know, my stepdad would consume, who's like a real hard, like Francophile. Mm-hmm. We would get like Radio Canada, which is like the French channel. We would get all the Quebec movies at the video store, like right up at the front, like Le Boys. Like my brother owned all those movies on DVD because wow. it was easily accessible to him. And it was something that I, like I disliked. So I just want to say that like right off the top, which is that when I was growing up, that was the feeling I had toward a lot of these things. Like I like these English things and I don't have access to them and I'm not even allowed to speak English in class. So I felt kind of repressed when really I was being given an insane opportunity. You mentioned how English was the devil's language and there is still enormous tension, I think, between Quebec and English Canada. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, elections have been lost in Quebec on the grounds that rural Quebec is worried about its um, culture being watered down. And Uh, let's be honest that if you look at history or the present, mm -hmm. federally Canada treats French-speaking people like garbage. Yeah. Now, Prime Minister Stephen Harper made the unusual decision during his tenure to make Quebec a nation within Canada. Did you remember that? I have vague memories uh, w- of this. Which, which kind of speaks to the strange like mm-hmm. tensions that exist. And, you know, I'm sure many of our listeners will know that there were the multiple referendums mm-hmm. uh, towards the end of the 20th century to determine whether or not Quebec should separate from Canada, the last of which separatists lost only very narrowly. And it's something that hasn't happened. Quebec is still part of Canada. Mm-hmm. But even like you know, a hundred years ago, even in Ontario, like French was banned in schools from like, you know, the early 1900s. And it was only stricken from the books in like the 1950s. And like teachers had to fight, families had to fight to be able to speak French. Wow. So you can understand why people from Quebec feel so strongly about their culture, Mm -hmm. that they're afraid it is going to be taken away. As opposed to me as a kid, Quebec was a half an hour drive away And we could get beer because you only need to be 16 to be able to drink in Quebec. (laughs) Uh, But but also the fear of its culture being taken away has translated somewhat in recent years to a lot of uh, anti-immigrant xenophobia. Mm -hmm. I don't have a point about that. It's just it's just I, I mean, the NDP basically lost the last federal election because of that issue. So when I decided to do an episode on Quebec cinema... I really want it to be Quebec popular cinema because I think there's too many filmmakers we could actually spend a whole episode on. Sure, Denis Arcand yeah, even, or uh, uh, Xavier Dolan. Or even people like Gilles Cal or uh, Jean-Pierre Lefebvre, which are like Quebec artists who mostly flourished in like the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Like you can get uh, into like the cinema direct wave that came out of the ONF, which is the French branch of the NFB, and the way that they kind of revolutionized Canadian cinema. Like it was Quebec that started any kind of fictional narrative film industry in Canada. And it was the English language part of the country that kind of caught up with them Mm -hmm. using their breakthroughs to inspire themselves. And I think it's because that identity that made such a big difference. So I picked movies that are mostly historically interesting or were very popular. And this was a little bit tough because I didn't want to pick movies like Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2, which me and Will have already seen. Yes. And like, we know we're not going to like it. I wanted to pick things very separate. So I tried to go by decade. Like the first one I picked was a film called A Man and His Sin, or in French, uh, Seraphin, Un Homme et Son Péché. So the version that we watched, what year did it come out? It came out in 1949. So I know this movie 
only because it was remade in 2002, and that version was a massive hit. It's currently, um, from a list that I found, the biggest Canadian box office hit, or sorry, Quebec hit ever, having made $13 million uh, at the Quebec box office. Wow. That the 1.3 million people went. That's a massive percentage of the population went to go see that movie. And I was fascinated to learn that A Man and His Sin is a very venerable franchise in Quebec. It began in the first half of the 20th century as a radio drama. And, I mean, watching this 1949 film, it, it's hard for me to tell, divorced from the context, what exactly made it a phenomenon. Although, you know, maybe I could make a few guesses. It's sat in a rural community about an hour north of Montreal, and the story involves this old miser, this uh, tight-fisted rich man who rules over the community of farmers and homesteaders, uh, always tricking them out of their money, taking loans from them. I hate to say this, are we supposed to read him as Jewish? Uh, I don't know. I would probably say probably, yes. I, th I think so, but um, I don't know. If, the, if any uh, historians of Quebec culture can write in and let us know, and now this old miser has his sight set on his latest target, who's this dashing, young, mustachioed, Errol Flynn-esque yes, uh, right. man who happens to have been the ex-lover of the miser's wife. The wife married him uh, out of necessity because he's the only man in town with money, could pay off her debts. You know, these were the cards that life dealt her and she had to take it just like the cards that this dashing young hero loses and his fortune goes with it so he, to keep his farm he has to take money from this old miser Seraphine and uh, Seraphine says alright I'll lend you the money to keep your farm but if you don't give me the money back by this specific date I will take everything that you own. Of course, that is the main intrigue of this film, which runs a brutally long 110 minutes, I think. Yeah, I mean, we've basically told you all the plot. So if you're wondering why something like this is popular, it's impossible to separate like the French-Canadian identity from the religious Catholic uh -huh. guilt that goes along with it. Like, Quebec is defined by um, the Quiet Revolution, which is uh, the movement that happened to separate kind of Quebec culture from these like overbearing religious overtones. Mm. But in 1949, our, you know, Christianity, it's right up there. I mean, this is a movie loaded with scenes of people looking, you know, very saintly in front of crucifixes and pictures of the Virgin Mary and people praying to God that our hero will elude the clutches of this sinister Seraphin. Like if one of the other big hits of Quebec films was 1951's La Petite Aurore, L'Enfant Martyr, which essentially translates to Aurore, the Child Martyr, another film about suffering, about a mother who mistreated her child until she died. So like this suffering is like baked into this like French Canadian culture <laughs> and to see it up on screen is like, oh yes, I like that because it reflects the way that, you know, we feel in our day-to-day -day lives. That's interesting because I was going to observe what a joyless film this mm -hmm. is, just like eating gruel for 110 minutes. It's, Nothing to look at, you know? I mean, in the 50s, like, 
Quebec barely had a film industry. Uh, it collapsed in 1954, and in Serafin, it's very stagey. It's not very showy. It's just like, here it is. I was actually shocked by the end of the film where there was a happy ending, mm-hmm. and happy in terms of how much suffering can we give this character and still kind of like get them out there with a smile. Shall we spoil it? Why yeah, not? Nobody's no one's going to watch it. it. Uh, our hero, of course, he loses everything to Serafin, but in a way... Has he lost everything? Because he has friends that tried to help him out. And a girl he's going to marry. Safin only has money. Yep. Uh, I was shocked that the hero didn't get um, his old flame back or anything like that. It was really about, like, this idea of a rural community not only coming together to help each other, but being able to go on and start anew with everything left behind. So I found the ending quite sweet, and yeah. I was glad that I stuck it out for it. In 1954, the Quebec film industry collapsed, and they all had only made 19 films. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And TV kind of took over. And, you know, I kind of brushed past it, but, like, the ONF wave, which had people like Denis Arquin making movies, the guy who would go on to win... Best of, foreign film. Yeah. Foreign the barbarian invasions uh we kind of our, start, his attack on our universal healthcare system <laughs> would start to revitalize the quebec film industry and one of the films like i worked really hard to like find a film that will could watch and it was tough because like three quarters of the films that i found i'm like they don't have english subtitles like i went to york university to get a dvd of one of the films because it said online it had subtitles didn't have English subtitles. It had French subtitles, but no English ones. And I was like, what the heck? And you know, we go on Letterboxd. Some of these movies were massive hits in Quebec. We were the only two people who watched them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was shocked <laughs> that the movie that we watched, Bingo, which came out in 1974, had no reviews. Because this was a bit of a inflammatory film when it came out. It really angered like English film critics and some Quebec film critics because it was portraying a very specific angle on what the October crisis was. For those who don't know the October crisis, it's one of the kind of defining events of Canadian history. It occurred in 1970 in October in Quebec when the Front de Libération de Quebec a FLQ, as it's often called. FLQ, which was a, a radical separatist group, kidnapped the provincial deputy premier, which uh, led to Pierre Elliott Trudeau, our prime minister, declaring martial law and uh, arresting, I think, something like 100 people without charge and putting them in prison. Which is documented most famously in Michel Brault's film, The Orders, or Les Ordres, which we're not talking about today, because he's another like famous kind of discussed filmmaker. But that we're is talk- one of the great Canadian that films. That is one of the great Canadian films. And we're talking about Bingo, which was directed by Jean-Claude Lord. That, who- by, by the way, that's an interesting moment when Trudeau, who was prime minister at the time, uh, there was that famous clip of him on TV where they would say, well, you can't invoke the War Measures Act, can you? He said, just watch me. Mm-hmm. And that has become one of the most iconic Canadian political moments of all time. And it's actually kind of a horrifying moment when you Awful. think about it. Yeah, it's like, just he's like just saying, a, I, I, will, I will bring down fascism and I can do it, so just watch me. So uh, the FLQ was actually very well liked in Quebec. Like there was a bunch of support, even when they were kind of kidnapping people. But when the FLQ killed the person that they kidnapped, which was the um, labor minister, Pierre Laporte, mm-hmm. that 
turned the entire country against them. So this movie, Bingo, came out in 1974, uh, just four years after the October Crisis, and I believe it was the first Canadian film to deal with the October Crisis, albeit in a somewhat oblique, disguised way. And I believe that's why people angrily called it an exploitation film, Uh that it was exploiting this recent event that was still fresh in all these people's memories, in a way just to get, like, I I don't want to say a thrill, because it's, it's not like you know, a Euro sleeves exploitation film or anything like that. In fact, it's fairly downbeat in its portrayal of this crisis. It frankly feels like a Hollywood thriller, like Mm. a good Hollywood thriller. But it opens uh, rather jollily Mm -hmm. uh, with this cool, hot, young photographer, uh, brooding Jean-Pierre Lyot type. He's out on the town, uh, taking pictures of his girlfriend, running through cemeteries, playing pranks. But, like, even... This scene is underlining, like, why the director thinks this, you know, main character is kind of dumb. Because he's introduced pretending to be mentally handicapped, or his girlfriend's pretending to be mentally handicapped, and they're taking photos of her. Or he's pretending to, like, use a homeless man as a prop, or just, like, jumping over a cemetery as the song plays over it, which was sung Bingo. by the director's wife. Which, Bingo. as I uh, told Will, is actually a really depressing song, which... Uh, all the French lyrics are all about death and destruction, but... I, I didn't know that. It yeah. sounded pretty upbeat to me. Uh, and just selling people out. There's nothing you can do because the whole world is against you. And that is basically the thesis of the film. Mm-hmm. The lead character, uh, this young man, his father is on the picket line at the factory. The government, the c- kind of corrupt uh, center-right government is in cahoots with the corporations, which are being bought by American companies, uh, underpaying the workers, laying off the workers. Big bad situation. Uh, the young man is saying, listen, we got to do away with these status quo establishment politicians. And he joins this radical socialist group. Uh, FLQ, uh, if you will. (laughs) Yep. And uh, they, what do they do? They start kidnapping people. Yeah. And then they start dropping bombs. And and innocent people start dying. And then they're doing this around election season because they're hoping to sway the election for the radical left candidate. But, uh uh-oh, turns out there's a radical right candidate who's running on a law and order platform. And the film plays out in the dreariest fashion you can imagine. Like, in this situation, what's the worst thing that can happen to these characters? Will their family members sell them out? Will no one understand what they're trying to do? Will even the terrorists themselves, they like it a little too much what they're doing. Like, they're having too much fun with it. Yep, that all comes to pass. Now, the movie's politics... I guess, are kind of centrist. Um, Uh, Nihilistic, They're nihilistic because it's everyone is damned. Like, even the leaders of the uh, FLQ party are corrupt monsters that are working with the far-right party. His father, who doesn't want to do anything, is also part of the problem. And and the centrist status quo party is also corrupt. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically what it's saying is you can't do anything. Yeah, even your grandma, who all she believes in is being able to win at bingo and having joy in her life from that will sell you out because you just pissed her off a little bit too much. There's also that scene when one of the terrorist group members is saying to the other, uh, you know, they're basically talking about welfare. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, oh boy, you know, we thought we were going to lift people out of poverty or we were going to, we were going to give them some money where there wouldn't be starvation wages. But, uh, it uh, turns out we gave them just enough to not seek out a job, which is just a straight up kind of right wing talking point. Yeah. So uh, essentially everyone is corrupt and terrible and you shouldn't continue living life because 
uh, you'll just die in the end. So, I mean, despite all this, um, perhaps because I didn't go in with huge expectations, I found this movie pretty engrossing. I think this is a movie that I'm a little bit surprised that it's been completely forgotten by essentially everyone. It only came to me because I remember reading it in Canadian Encyclopedia or reading an essay from the time of its release and people were really angry that it came out because, like, what are its politics? Mm. <laughs> and the fact that it just kind of disappeared. And it was a hit when it came out, too, which is why people were kind of incensed at its release. I mean, we are kind of looking at these movies as historical documents, and I can only assume that the movie was a hit partly because this was the reaction that a lot of people had after the Mm -hmm. October crisis, like this frustration of what can you do? Nothing seems to work. And so they liked a movie that reflected this. But even like an audience going to see this, what you get out of it as you're coming out the doors would be anger Mm -hmm. and that you do want to kind of do what that kid did, but try to go down the right path. Try not to kill anyone. Yeah, try not to kill anyone. Because the film at the end of the day is like, yeah, big business and politics are corrupt and it's awful. But I like, think it also suggests that the right-wing guy is going to win anyway because his message is more uh, e- easier to communicate and more compelling to more people. I think that's the movie's point of view. Yeah, and even, again, you see that the um, people that are all for socialism and stuff are just uh, as bad as those right-wing, that mythical horseshoe. That's wink, right, wink. <laughs> that's right. So, other than Bingo, me and Will watched a movie that... Let's just say it was a tough watch. Well, this was a movie that actually did play in English Canada. Mm -hmm. It was a massive, massive hit in Quebec. Such a hit that it spawned, I think, three sequels. Uh, Four sequels or a prequel and a TV series that I think is still running. It's like run five seasons. And in fact, it even played in the United States. I could not find a copy of this movie to save my life. (laughs) Like... Nowhere. Our library didn't have it. I couldn't find it for sale anywhere. I think on Amazon it's like $80. This movie was a huge hit. It has so many sequels. I found in Quebec there's a Blu-ray and I looked and it's like the website that it was on was like not available. God and I'm like, is this some like conscious decision? It's not even on iTunes. Like I couldn't Surely believe it. in Quebec they have a way to see it. They I love this movie there. I, they must. <laughs> or maybe like the early films were like, we don't talk about them. We just talk about the TV series now. Huh. Again, I had to go to York University and get a copy. And unfortunately, Will had to experience something that I was like, you know, maybe we shouldn't do this episode. Because on the DVD, it only had French and an English dubbed version. <laughs> So I watched this movie, which the title we will reveal shortly, but I watched it dubbed, and honestly, I was okay with it. Because, you? You know, look, it's, I not, mean, it's not like we're watching the 400 Blows dubbed no. or something. It's it's a piece of shit, so fine. We watch Le Boys, or The Boys, The Boys are back in town. Boys. Is that song in the movie? No, it should be. Yeah, the budget was probably a little tight for that. The titular boys are a group of, you know, 30-something perhaps even 40-something Canadian men uh, who play hockey on the weekend. Mm -hmm. They're weekend warriors. They're uh, cool alphas. (laughs) Um, You know, some of them are climbing the corporate ladder in in real life. Most of them have wives that they neglect. They like nothing more than, uh, you know, getting the old stick on the ice and then going out to to the local tavern for a drink and some manly conversation after. And so this film was omnipresent when I was a kid because like it was so popular and I had a stepbrother who loved hockey so by consequence he loved Le Bois and this is not a satirical film by any stretch of the imagination well it's a comedy it is it's also sitting down and watching it for this podcast a bafflingly structured comedy 
the first hour takes place over one night. <laughs> that seems endless. Did you notice that? That it yeah. was just like, oh, it just went on and on. Oh, I felt that. And yeah. you, you're, you're introduced to all these like 40 year old characters who are just big old goofballs who, I don't know if they swore in the English dub, but in the French dub, they're swearing all the time. Mm. They're just like sexist and just kind of dumb. So this film is just like your normal underdog sports movie done in the most laziest, laissez-faire attitude. Well, there's a guy who owes money to the mob. Yeah. And so that's... they have to play a game and beat like these like, hockey enforcers or else they'll lose their bar you know this reminded me of when i was a reporter at the woolwich observer (laughs) i would have to go to hockey games every weekend and i would i would take pictures of them and i would write about them and what i remember were the old guys who would watch these junior b hockey games screaming at the top of their lungs players were like 16 17 and you know anytime they had to fight these old guys were like kick his ass kick his ass if there was blood on the ice they loved it um that culture i don't much like the game and that culture adds to my visceral distaste for hockey as a phenomenon this is not only a thematically ugly movie it's also like an ugly looking movie yeah it looks like the color of piss so i think this is one of the reasons why it was probably popular because when i see this shitty looking arena and i see these shitty looking uh uh, pubs where they drank. Well, the viewers see themselves. I I was in arenas like that. Mm. I've been in pubs like that. And Quebec, because its culture is so specific, to see it portrayed on screen, I think it is important for mm-hmm. people in a way that, like, you know, Canadians... If Canada was shown on screen in a day-to-day way, I think Canadians would respond to that as well. But producers of those films are like, oh, no, we're too scared. We don't want to do it. Uh, it takes place in America town. Yeah, yeah. And so Le Boys is a movie that, because you see this, and it's such a pure kind of like working class way without any pretension. This is a film that like the ending, they just win for some reason. Sure. There's no payoff or anything. The film's almost two hours long. Oh, my God. <laughs> and Ugh. like... That's why it's so popular. Yeah. And I mean, when you're talking about Quebec popular cinema, like there's a reason that Le Boys, even the name right there, like Le Boys, right? By taking away the and just putting the French Le, like it makes it theirs. I couldn't tell these characters apart. <laughs> no, there was like, even though you spent so long oh. with them, oh my there's God. the secretly gay one. Yeah. There's Patrick Huard. Patrick Huard, the kind of Tom Hanks of Quebec. <laughs> yeah. He, he was in Starbuck which was the movie that became the basis for Delivery Man. Mm-hmm. I believe he was also in Mommy, wasn't he? Uh, uh, yes, he yeah, was. Yeah. Delivery Man, the Vince Vaughn film, uh, was one of the rare examples of a Quebec filmmaker also directing the remake that nobody cared about. That was the film where Vince Vaughn fathers like 100 children, which I, he's a sperm I too donor. have done. Because <laughs> he's a sperm donor, yeah. <laughs> I actually like the original version of Starbuck, but maybe it's a loss in translation kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, he's one of boys. Yeah, he is. I mean... Uh, if if this were a bar, I would leave it. But, <laughs> yep. you know, many... It's a movie not for you ma- or yeah, me. It's not for me. And many people chose to return to Les Boys uh, for the subsequent sequels. And it was a movie that really needed to be discussed on this show because, you know, there's something in its, in its musty aroma that mm-hmm. I recognize as Canadian. So 
we've pretty much reached the end of the movies that we watched. I tried to get Will to watch The Peanut Butter Solution, which I know I'm you didn't sorry, have time. I ran out of time. Which is part of a wave of uh, French-Canadian films that were made in Quebec. A lot of them were shot in English mm-hmm. called uh, it's Les Contes pour tout in French, which is essentially like fairy tales for everyone. Mm-hmm. And they were these bizarre, almost... If you ever seen like an MST3K Russian fairy tale? Oh, yeah. Like that but set in modern day uh, Quebec. Mm. And like the peanut butter solution is about a young kid who sees something so horrifying that all of his hair falls out. And then a ghost tells him to make a magic solution made of peanut butter that he puts on his head and his hair grows back, but it won't stop growing. And then he gets captured by a teacher and forced to make his hair into magic paintbrushes by the other kids. It also involves one of the kids putting the magic hair growing solution on his crotch and his crotch hair won't keep growing. It's baffling. And it's a film that I watched a hundred times in elementary school. (laughs) The Peanut Butter Solution is a film that is fondly recalled by, I think, most people in this country age 40 to 45. And I think it's because, well, I'm not 40. (laughs) I know you're not, but a a lot of people in that age group love it. I think it's because that, I I don't know what deal was struck by um, the people behind this movie, but every French-speaking school in Canada got a (laughs) copy of it, so a teacher would just pop it on to pass the time, and that's why everybody has fond memories of this picture. Maybe do a Patreon episode of it because I think it is really important when it comes to like Canadian cinema and other than that I just didn't want to pick films that like you know they're just Quebec Hollywoodish films like De Père en Flic which Cop and His Son essentially it has a different title than English which is the third biggest box office hit in Quebec history under Bon Cop, Bad Cop, which we've talked about a little bit on podcast before. A uniquely Canadian phenomenon, that film. I believe it came out in 2006. It was a kind of crossover between the French and English Canadian film industries. Mm-hmm. It starred Patrick Huard and as the uh, Bon Cop and... Uh, our, our Canada superstar, Colm Fior. Colm Fior. Colm Fior. Uh, Stratford's own. He played Trudeau on the Trudeau movie That's right, yeah. But he plays the English language cop and they get together to solve there was a murder at the quebec ontario border a body landed on the side and it broke in half. half it was in all the trailers and uh, <laughs> rick mercer is in the movie Ugh. it's fine it's fine yeah yeah i, I remember seeing it in theaters so did i <laughs> i saw it in theaters because get this i went to see world trade center but it was sold out <laughs> You're, and then you, you're like, well, I'm already wearing this irony bro shirt, so I might as well just go see Volkov, Bad Cop. You know, at that time, I didn't go see movies, ironically. <laughs> you were just a big Oliver Stone fan. I was like, fan. well, Oliver Stone's a real filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> but we should say that, like, to just look at, like, the Canadian film industry, Volkov, Bad Cop, one of the biggest Canadian films ever, mm-hmm. a sequel doesn't appear until a few years ago. So there was like an insane... 10 years gap. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what are you guys doing? Justin and I went to see Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2 together at the Rainbow Market Square in Toronto. <laughs> it was a true grindhouse experience. There were people in the audience who were like talking to themselves and uh, just a strange atmosphere in the theater. And, and a terrible film, by the way. <laughs> oh, Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2 is awful. And like, other than that, looking at this like box office, it's the expected 
films, The Grand Seduction, The Barbarian Invasion, another version of Arar, the uh, martyr child, which came out in 2005. Mm -hmm. Quebec still loves their suffering. Uh, De Paraflic 2, The Boys 4, Elvis Graton 2, which I could talk about a little bit. I wanted Will to watch Elvis Graton, which was a film that was omnipresent when I was a kid because it was the film where there was a dumb guy who swore and was racist and did a bunch of tense rate Mr. Bean style slapstick. <laughs> and so Elvis Graton was another like kind of Canadian phenomenon. I've heard him described as like the redneck version of Jacques Tati, which is very generous Yikes. and was created by a director like in the uh, 1980s to be an image of who the dumb, in his view, person who didn't want to separate. So it was someone who loved American culture, was super xenophobic. The main character is an Elvis imitator who hates that there's an Asian Elvis imitator in the contest that he's in. He goes to like a foreign country and acts like an ugly American, aka ugly Quebecer. But what's interesting about the Elvis Graton phenomenon is that the film, as it goes along, especially the first one, it goes from, like, this kind of, like, ridicule of this person to him doing all this goofy slapstick. So by the time the second one came out, people my age, when I was a kid in, like, I guess, 95, they just liked the character. This separatist message did not, like, <laughs> come to them. It was just like, ah, he says stuff like, tabarnak est calis. Ah, I love it so much. For if people don't know how Quebec swears work, or French-Canadian swears... It's just the names of things that are in the church. And those are the worst swears that you can say. Wow. So I like Callis, Chalice. I hope we have some eight-year-old <laughs> listeners who can use this on the schoolyard. Tabernacle, uh, the tabernacle. That's all it is. And you just string them all in one go. And that's how you swear in French Canadian. And, you know, it's just the obvious stuff if I'm looking at this list. It has Maurice Richard and a whole bunch of other comedy stuff. Do we have anything we can recommend to the listeners? Again, like I said, it's probably a whole other episode. Like, I would recommend the films of Gilles Cal, who doesn't get talked about at all um, when you're talking about kind of Canadian film, unless you're, like, really into it. He made a film called La Vraie Nature de Bernadette. Uh, it's the true nature of Bernadette, which is a film I would highly recommend. It's almost like... Bunuelian surrealism about a woman who goes from a, the big city life to the small town life and tries to just be amicable. And this goes into, like, crazy ways to the point that like she's sleeping with most of the town <laughs> and then they think she's a saint of some kind and she can create miracles. Huh. Gilles Cal was like a master of creating these scenarios that like are almost like goofy or genre stuff and then kind of turning them to pitch nihilist blackness by the end. Like, I don't remember if we talked about this on the Canadian episode that we did, but like Canadian cinema and fiction is defined by like depression and losing and failing. And having sex with animals. <laughs> That's right. Uh, any kind of weird sex stuff, pedophilia. It's in all of our it's in all of our literature. But it's mostly defined by failure. And yes. so like when you go in movies, especially the popular Canadian ones, just be ready for that. Mm -hmm. Looking at this list, Crazy is really good. That was like a big Quebec hit about the uh, coming of age of a young gay man. Uh, Jean-Marc Vallée's breakthrough film. Mm -hmm. Jean-Marc Vallée being the director of such hits as Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies, and that's also right. also David Davidson's favorite director. <laughs> David Davidson being the editor of Toronto Film Review. Yep. <laughs> Which is a 
very detailed look into Canadian cinema and just cinema in general. With lots of uh, exhaustive Jean-Marc Vallée coverage. Another recommendation I would make is from a director called Jean-Pierre Lefebvre, who's someone I really need to explore more. He's essentially the kind of like French-Canadian Godard. He was very experimental, but he made a lot of feature films. And Le Vieux Pays où Rimbaud est mort, it translates to The Old Country Where Rimbaud Died. Um, came out in 1977 is about a French Canadian who goes to France to find his roots and finds there's like a big separation between both of them and that film stars an actor named Marcel Sabourin and it's a very playful kind of like in that Godardian style where the kind of rules of the film can be broken but it's also like very moving and funny at the same time so check that one out and on that actor he also stars in a film called G.A. Martin Photographer, or in French, it's G.A. Martin Photographe, which was a big NFB hit, which is about a, a photographer um, at the dawn of the kind of medium who goes out with his wife in the countryside for his annual trip where he goes and photographs weddings. It is pretty much the quintessential Canadian film in the sense that it's like very leisurely. You take in the sights. There's no real kind of dramatic arc, but it's very subversive in the way it builds until the climax finally hits you. So check out those movies and make sure to check out uh, a site called Elephant Memories of Quebec Cinema, which is about 10 years ago, private institution decided to start a company that would take Quebec films, remaster them and release them on iTunes or other platforms completely like from the negative, perfect. And you can buy them or rent them for a few bucks. And most of them have subtitles and they've done I, I think they've done almost 500 films over the years. And that's why, you know, we were able to watch Seraphin and we were able to watch Bingo with thanks to being able to rent copies of those films on the Elephant platform from places like iTunes. Mm -hmm. So check that out. Even browse the website. They have a lot of Quebec films up and they have a lot of contextualizing information as well, which the rest of English uh, speaking Canadian cinema doesn't have any of. Well, that's because nobody wants to watch those movies. <laughs> I do. That's right. And I'm going to force everybody else to watch them as well. Other than that, like looking at this list, I feel like, I mean, the Grand Seduction is fine. There was a, a Canadian remake in English 10 years after the fact. By Don McKellar. That's right. Mm -hmm. One of the other Canadian starring everyone's favorite um, leading man from John Carter and Peter Burke's Battleship. Yeah, was it Taylor, Taylor Kitsch? Kitsch. That's yeah. right. <laughs> And uh, other than that, like, I'll get back to Quebec films. It's something that I really want to discover a lot more of, even though that I am stuck in, like, that weird middle ground where technically when people learn that I'm French-Canadian, they're like, oh, are you from Montreal? I'm like, no, I'm not from Montreal. Even though growing up, I was essentially in a small Quebec town that was not in Quebec. So if they separate, we've still got you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. It'll have to happen, and then we'll have to make that decision. <laughs> Well, it's time to separate this part of the podcast from the rest of the podcast. What a transition. <laughs> and uh, let's let's go to the letter section. Justin, do we have any letters? Our first letter goes, Hi, Will and Justin. I just wanted to send an email to say that I really appreciate the episodes where you do a subject off the beaten track. Well, I hope you're listening to this one. You often mention that when you do a director or star that is not as famous as Tom Cruise or Christopher Nolan, you get far less downloads. Personally, I really appreciate it when you've done stuff on people I never heard of. Bill Gunn, Lizzie Borden 
Martin, or art house stuff I haven't gotten around to, Fassbender, Chantal Ackerman. My favorite, though, are when you express your love of obscure and weird Canadian cinema. Hey. I'm particularly obsessed with forgotten or disreputable movies from my homeland of the UK and the passion and cultural context you bring to some old Canadian movies no one has seen is always great to listen to, and it resonates with me in exactly the same way I like DTV Danny Dyer movies. I know who that is. I don't. <laughs> is, though, I could suggest a topic that you should totally do an episode on on which no one will listen to. It is Albert Pune. He's Whoa. an auteur who never stopped working, even if he never caught a break, and his films are always memorable, even when they fail. Plus, he's someone that there's not much in the way of appreciation of. Keep up the good work. Another will. Well, huh. I mean, someone may have written an article called... Uh, I think it's Albert Pune is a good director. Great director. Great director. Yeah, I mean, and the author of that is Justin the Glue. I mean, you have written to the right place because one of us mm. is one of the world's foremost Albert Pune super fans. <laughs> this, this guy, and I like him. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't love him or anything, but uh, he's somebody who I would like to investigate more Ugh. because the movies of his I've seen have always had uh, some glimmer of fun to them. Uh, I'm fascinated by his career at how prolific he could be, how he could work in what seems like one genre, which is the cyborg action film, but really make stuff across the spectrum. And the fact that he was actually a minority filmmaker as well, and being able to work this much is something very rare to be seen in North American cinema history. And now he has multiple sclerosis and he's still directing films. Like he's a guy who just needs to keep making movies. I yeah. think that when I learned that he pulled a Jess Franco-like move and he had a few extra days after filming a certain movie and he shot something in three days, I think the movie was called Deceit. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I love this guy. He's right on my alley. And I think that people calling him stuff like, you know, the modern day Ed Wood has really hurt him personally, mm -hmm. like his feelings as well, because he talks very kind of low of his work. He has very little... I mean, I'm sure he likes it, but I feel like all those barbs have kind of like dug into him. You know where it really comes from is from one movie in particular, and it's Captain, Captain America. America. Yeah. Which was the Captain America that you probably saw at the video store in the 90s, and you've probably seen on late night TV. The shitty one starring J.D. Salinger's son. Matt Salinger, I believe. Yes. I mean, it's more fun than its reputation would um, suggest. It's fun in kind of a cheesy way. But it is also a film where Captain America's riding in a car and goes oh my stomach hurts stop the car and then he gets out of the car and the driver follows him he goes are you okay and then Captain America goes ha ha and runs jumps in the car and then drives off his suit also looks shitty yeah it does um, the Red Skull looks cool at the beginning yeah Captain America one of the few movies I saw as a child that I didn't like wow <laughs> uh, and I saw it again probably five years ago and uh, I couldn't believe that it was all set in Europe. If I had to it's Captain America. If I had to <laughs> uh, suggest some. Well, he went to go fight those Nazis okay. out in Europe. Okay, you can. There are three countries Captain America can be. Can be. He can be in Russia. He can be in Germany. He can be in America. I don't want to see him in another country. I think he's in Switzerland or something. Yeah, like that it's in the movie. bullshit. Switzerland. But if you listen to like Albert Pune talk, Albert Pune also being most famous for Jean Claude Van Damme, Cyborg. Yes, beautiful it, film. Is that like he's very like serious about his movies? Like he talks about in Captain America that they built 
the sidewalks in the beginning flashback sequences with Steve Rogers slanted so Steve Rogers would look smaller than everybody else so he could stand on like a lower so he looked weak before he became Captain America and no one thinks about that uh, when they think of his film they just think how cheap trashy they were and that he was working in disreputable genres who had almost no money my biggest used bookstore regret of all time was at a second look bookstore in Kitchener Ontario where they had his director's cut of Captain America on DVD. I mean, I have the director's cut of Captain America on DVD. I can give it to you if you want. Well, please do. Yep. Um, but I, w- I want to have it f- that's just just mine. Yeah, I know. Because uh, was... he released those movies himself. Yeah. And you can't get them anymore. To find. Um, he came this close. Uh, man, I don't want to give all my good Albert Pune material because I'm going to save him for an yeah. episode. But I was in contact with him briefly when our films were both going to play at the same festival. And because he was too sick, he didn't get to see my movie, oh. which would have been amazing because there's tons of Albert Pune shout. Like there's <laughs> copies of Nemesis in the movie. There's a direct line ripoff of his film Nemesis. I can recommend Albert Pune film Still the Cows Come Home. We like, will. We yeah, will. we will. I just want to talk about like just recommend Nights, a movie that soured my opinion of Albert Pune forever because I think I read a review on Cold Fusion Video and the guy hated it. Those websites like StompTokyo.com yeah. hated him. And like when I finally sat down and watched the movie, it is Albert Pune saw Choi Hark's The Blade and he was like, how could I make this with cyborgs? And the crazy thing about it is The Blade came two years after his movie Nights. <laughs> so it's a film where at one point that lead hero is fighting off a bunch of guys with like martial arts she has a robot sidekick who lost his legs tied to her back. And so he's sword fighting at the same time as they're like, mm-hmm. so they're fighting on two different planes. Ah, so much fun. But that's something for another day. I really want to write a book on Albert Pune, but no one would read it. So that's I, what's, I, would I know it. you would read it, but that's what's been keeping me. Just like, I would just watch all of his movies and just review every one. And that's what the book would be. Someone will, will read this book. <laughs> It's just, it's just a the, lot of work. The fans are he made out like there. 52 movies. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, thank you very much for sending that letter and giving me a chance to um, expound on Albert Pune. Our next letter is from Michael Carroll, and it goes Team Don McKellar. What's hey, his deal? Speak of the devil. <laughs> it's so weird that two <laughs> Canadian cinema related uh, letters. I'm from the US and I have fond memories of his show Twitch City playing on Bravo. It played after TV Nation. And then lo and behold, I started seeing him in the Red Violin and some Adam McGoyan stuff. In 2001, I was able to come up to see some movies at TIFF. And I recall him doing some funny PSAs before screenings. That's hilarious. Yeah. Well, we'll get into this a little bit later. And then he seemed to fall off my radar. Checking his IMDb, he still seems to work a lot. Is he a big deal in Canada? Do you guys like his work? Michael Carroll. Well, thanks for the letter, Mike. He's a pretty big deal in Canada. I don't think people know who he is, though. I mean, so in the film world, he's very well Yes, he's very big. Even though he hasn't really directed a hit since last night. Which yeah, came out in the 90s. Last, last Night is kind of his acknowledged masterpiece. And last then, Night is a movie that when people go, Canadian cinema, Last Night, Ginger Snaps, Cube. Yeah, the, the la, Last Night is one of those movies that you, when you want a Canadian cinema movie that people won't hate, <laughs> you recommend that to them. Because that's all you know. Wait, no, I have a list. Let me get it out. Anyway. And, the, and then he made Child Star, which yeah. is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then he got involved with the director of City of God. And they for, made Blindness together. That is correct. And I, I believe he wrote Blindness he, and, he and co-stars, co-stars in, in it. it. I know that he had a personal tragedy in his life. His wife uh, passed away. Yeah, who acted in a lot of his films. Um, and I'm not sure what impact that had on his career. I know that his first movie after that was the remake of The Grand Seduction. I also know that he's a prolific actor on 
he was the voice of Odd Job Jack. Remember that? <laughs> Uh, uh, I don't think I ever saw an episode of Odd Job Jack, but on Bathurst Street, the animation studio, which yeah, was long closed, I remember it. had Odd Job Jack stuff all over the right walls. Right across the street from the Cineforum. <laughs> That's right. Um, uh, he also... He's in a lot of short films. He, he was in uh, Slings and Arrows, which is a really yeah. popular Canadian TV show. Um, uh, and, uh, I mean, Twitch City is a great show. Twitch City is great. Yeah. And it's... It was essentially spaced before space existed. Yeah. Mostly directed by Bruce McDonald and it co-stars uh, Molly Parker, mm-hmm. and also in a supporting role. I think on one season it's Mark McKinney, and then another season it's Bruce McCulloch from Kids in the Hall playing and, the same TV Jerry Springer type host. And it's like this weird, surreal mm-hmm. TV show that can go in essentially any direction. Like I guess Gen X comedy is what it's going for. Yeah, he Don McKellar plays this. Uh, couch potato who lives in sort of a hipster apartment in Kensington Market. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, where the king of Kensington lives. <laughs> that's I bl- that's often alluded to yeah. on the show. And yeah, it's such a. I should rewatch that show. It's, it's really on DVD. Good. It's two discs, yeah. and it's like really fun. There's like an episode that it always sticks in my mind where Don McKellar like hates cats and he wakes up one day where cats have become the rulers of the planet. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember that episode. <laughs> I also have some personal connections to last night. My mom had an office in Weston in Toronto when it was being filmed. Um, so I uh, saw the set of it. There's a scene in the movie where a police car gets overturned. Well, I remember seeing that police car overturned on the street. Wow. And I, were they like, they're making a real movie here? Yeah, absolutely. And I also remember my mom often tells the story of the time she accidentally walked onto the set. I don't know if they were filming yet, but they, or they were about to film, but she walked on. And she has often said that Don McKellar was very nice and polite to her. And, and, <laughs> she and, kept walking and on? She was also Did t- your mom have an affair with Don McKellar? Is that what you're getting uh, to? Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> How fucking dare you? <laughs> My mom is a saint. My mom's a saint. And uh, she also says that Don, she was taken aback by how young Don McKellar was, and she didn't realize realized he was the director of the movie until she saw him on TV a few weeks later. He also plays the director of the fictional movie starring Chris Evans in Scott Pilgrim vs. the yeah, World. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and, you know, I, I would always hear stuff about Don McKellar. Like, at one point, he was working with Park Chang-wook on a project that I mm. guess fell through. I know he and Edgar Wright pal around, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also have a very distant connection to Don McKellar which years and years ago when I first moved to Toronto I uh, befriended someone who was a receptionist at his talent agency and she always had some Don McKellar stories about how he was a nice guy and he really didn't have that many problems (laughs) but he would get like a big basket from like crazed fans with like tons of gifts on it and he'd be like just send it back like this is too crazy (laughs) so you know to some people I guess he is a big star but I think he's also part of that like Toronto new wave that happened in the 90s that has been kind of like forgotten or been assimilated into television by this point. I think he also just doesn't have a lot of room to navigate in the Canadian film industry. I mean, what Canadian film industry? Exactly, right? He can't become the, you know, auteur that I love he should have. I tr- love sitting at TIFF and seeing, like, PSA starring everyone's favorite, Don McKellar. <laughs> Alright, so, uh, as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com and next week... Finally, we're getting... Usually when I say finally, I'm being um, sarcastic in some way. Not this time, because we're talking about uh, writer-director Jesus Franco. Or more commonly known... Jess Franco. 
Who is Jess Franco, Will? Jess Franco is the king of Spanish exploitation cinema. Directed, I don't know, 200 movies, maybe mm. more, maybe less. A, a lot, a lot of movies. Movies like Vampiros Lesbos. Female Vampire. Eugenie Desade. Uh, she killed the next to see. How to Seduce a Virgin. Uh, we're going to play this game until we run out. Yeah. Venus and Verse. Uh, Count Dracula. Necronomicon. The awful Dr. Orloff. Uh, the sadistic Baron Von Klaus. A uh, knight has a thousand desires. Uh, Hot Knights of Linda. Man, we, Succubus. We could just make this game. Uh, Succubus is also the name of Necronomicon. You lose! <laughs> uh, we could play this game forever, which is why we're doing a important cinema club first, which is we're going to do a Jess Franco part one. We're going to talk up until a particular point in his career. But just to let people know, if you're wondering, like, when are you going to talk about Linda Linda, the film he shot in his apartment in the 2000s? When are you going to talk about uh, The Sex is Crazy, (laughs) one of his many porn films from the 80s? Or Killer Barbie, one of his (laughs) 90s films. Again, we could play this game forever, but uh, I think me and you are kind of obsessed with Jess Franco. Oh, yeah. Uh, So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think we decided on... Vampiros Lesbos. The Awful Dr. Orloff. Mm -hmm. And... Justine. Justine, that's right. Mm -hmm. I think those were the three, and we may watch a few more if we have the time, but I think that gives a very varied look of his early career. And our Patreon this week, it's essentially a whole other episode, because we talked for a while about Mr. Robert Zemeckis. We revisited his film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. (sighs) Does it hold up? Well, you're going to have to listen to find out. And uh, also some hot, late-breaking insights on his <laughs> blockbuster new film, Welcome to Marwin. And uh, to listen to that episode and our whole back catalog, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. And we're starting something new. You know what? I'm going to say this. Before the next episode, we will pick a Patreon subscriber and they can pick a subject for a Patreon episode, which will be a movie. Okay. And so that's going to be a new monthly thing we're going to do is we'll pick someone to pick a movie. So if you want to be thrown in that pot, uh, become a subscriber before the next episode. And uh, I want to get 200 subscribers before the end of January. How will that happen? That's 20 away. That's not that much, right? So what are we going to do? I don't know. You're just going to ask? <laughs> Please. We're going to do a contest of some kind. All right. Oh, and I also want to remind people, if you want to subscribe to the paper newsletter, uh, which you will receive in the mail every month, you can just become a $10 Patreon subscriber. No extra cost. Uh, it's just 10 bucks, And you, you'll I'll send hand sent using glue to put it together and stuffing in the envelopes the newsletters that I write um, every month. They're mostly like essays and movie lists and stuff like that not actually news because who wants news and newsletters you know the news is so tough these days <laughs> that's right so it's better to live in our entertainment uh again that's patreon.com slash the important cinema club so until next week my name is justin Blue. i'm will sloan thanks for listening Justin and I got together for a movie date last week. We uh, went to the Young and Dundas Cineplex and saw... Uh, a 9.30 showing. A 9.30 showing of a blockbuster new film uh, called Smokey and the Bandit. Folks, it's not actually a new film. It was the <laughs> Burt Reynolds hit, which... 
for some reason was playing at I think it's their flashback month or whatever they do Young and Dundas has what 20 screens I think they gotta fill them and they gotta fill them with something so they play Smokey and the Bandit to Me Will and uh, two two other people one of them who wore a Smokey and the Bandit t-shirt and who sat right behind us when the movie started and then one of the guys went don't sit right behind them they're the only people in the cinema he probably wanted to feel some community with his fellow Bertophiles <laughs> that's right that's probably why the movie was programmed because Burt Reynolds died so had you seen Smokey and the Bandit before? nope now, I don't think I had either I, I thought I did but as it was playing I'm like nah nothing's really ringing any bells when I saw that it was playing you know it's hard to find time to go see movies and repertory cinemas these days but when i saw that this was playing i was like when is this gonna play again now or never yeah. i mean this movie was a cultural phenomenon in the 70s star wars like hit hard to fathom now really mm-hmm. um and also burt reynolds maybe the biggest movie star in the world at the time hard to fathom now <laughs> i know i mean who who watches burt reynolds movies anymore us, us? <laughs> and the two other guys so i wanted to experience this movie mm-hmm. because if i didn't see it at this point i don't think I, I would never watch it at home yeah you know it's not gonna play ever again mm-hmm. and um so what's it about so uh smoking the bandit is about burt reynolds He's got tight jeans. Uh, real tight jeans. As Will elbowed me at one point, I was like, look at those jeans. And by that, I meant he was pointing at the crotch of Kurt Reynolds, who plays a washed up, uh, let's say, folk hero. Yeah, folk hero. Everybody knows who he is. So, Burt Reynolds is dared by two Texas gentlemen, one of them played by lovable musician Paul Williams, the man behind the Phantom of Paradise songs and also the songs in the Muppet movie. Mm-hmm. To go to Texarkana, which I will never forget because that's where the murders from the town that dreaded sundown took place. (laughs) And that's where I stayed when I took my U.S. trip a few years ago. To go get a truck of Coors beers and get it back to them in, I think it's 28 hours. Mm -hmm. And the reason that he wants this to happen is just a wager. And it's also illegal because to cross the states would count as bootlegging. Mm -hmm. So, uh... But look, that, you know, I'm listening to this and it's like, doesn't even fucking matter. What matters (laughs) is it's Bert and he's picked up Sally Field on the way, who's a runaway bride and Mm -hmm. becomes his love interest. And of course, they were famously love interests in real life as well. Huh. Until he broke her heart. Oh. I know. It's very sad uh, because they have such chemistry here and it's so pure and so lovely. And, and uh, uh, Burt Reynolds is also teamed up with his best friend, uh, Western singer Jerry, Jerry Reed, Reed, who is driving the truck. And Burt Reynolds is essentially, uh, he says he's a breaker, which he drives in front of the truck in a sleek uh, car and so fast that he will distract the police who will then chase him and then he can lose them so they won't bother the truck. He's a true outlaw. Mm-hmm. And the movie has a real fuck the police message. You know? <laughs> the police in this case portrayed by uh, Jackie Gleason. Jackie Gleason at his most corpulent. His most, uh, as Will said, Yosemite Samish. Yeah, because Burt Reynolds is obviously Bugs Bunny in this scenario. And uh, Jackie Gleason, you know, as Buford T. Justice, <laughs> really uh, plays it to the hilt. Just, just full on like Orson Welles in Touch of Evil. <laughs> There's a scene where he sits beside Burt Reynolds in a diner and Jackie Gleason doesn't know that Burt Reynolds is the bandit. And Gleason just tears into a sandwich. Like, he is chewing the scenery literally and figuratively as he's like licking his lips, just stuffing it in there. I was like laughing so hard when that was happening. I think, ja- yeah, Jackie Gleason, it's it's insane. Okay, one of my favorite pieces of film knowledge ever. <laughs> yep. You know what I'm going to say. I know what you're going to say. It's the fact that 
Smokey and the Bandit 3, they couldn't get Burt Reynolds back, so their idea was to have Jackie Gleason play both Buford T. Justice and the Bandit, and they shot the whole movie. They released a trailer where Jackie Gleason was in front of an American flag, and he says, to beat the Bandit, I am going to become my greatest enemy, and it was going to be called Smokey is the Bandit 3, and apparently it just tested so poorly that they took it and they reshot the whole thing and they just got jerry reed back (laughs) they reshot the whole movie it was like uh, kevin spacey and all the money in the world anyway back to smoking the bandit part one uh, part one yeah (laughs) part of this trilogy yeah that synopsis you just gave for Smokey is the Bandit is such a misunderstanding of what people liked about this first one, which is, for all intents and purposes, a very kind of fluffy romantic comedy between Burt Reynolds and Sally Fields. It's two charming people uh, driving a lot. Very fast. Driving very fast and a, a, a funny, wacky guy chasing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's very much resting on the charm of uh, Burt Reynolds in his most Norm Macdonald-esque performance. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you almost believe Norm Macdonald, like, they should have just gotten Norm Macdonald to play the Burt Reynolds role <laughs> in yeah. a Smokey and the Band 3. I wouldn't overhype this movie or anything. It's but, fun. It's a lot it, of fun. It, it is fun. I use the word fluffy very specifically. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's... A romantic comedy that, like, the thing that stood out the most to me is that, like, all the discussion scenes happen with the cars zooming down the road, Mm -hmm. and that gives it, like, a different flavor than most romantic comedies have. There's always something to look at. It's very propulsive. And there's, like, a ticking clock, and Hal Needham, who directed it, you know, started as a stuntman, so that's his, like, favorite thing to do, to flip cars and just have fun. It's a movie that, like, is so disinterested in its own plotline that at the end it's like, I guess we're gonna go do it again! Let's go! Vroom! And they just drive off. Mm So I'm glad that I saw it. Yeah, I understand Burt Reynolds more now. Mm-hmm. Heck, I even understand Jackie Gleason more now. <laughs> yeah. And now if we could only find that Day the Clown Cried of Smokey and the Bandit films, Smokey is the Bandit. That is my new Holy Grail.